0: think about that. Uh, We're going to start, we've started a new series, Hindsight 2020, and I'm going to continue in that today. But uh, before we do that, I wanted to share a story like we did last time. And so let's tune in and listen to what Heather Bond has to say about her life.
1: I'm Heather Bond. I'm married with a couple of kids from Oak Harbor. Before finding Jesus, my life was very out of control. I had just graduated from high school just starting in college, didn't know which way to go, felt like everything was total chaos. (laughs) I felt unloved, unwanted, alone, and like a total burden to everyone around me. My boyfriend at the time uh, was a follower of Jesus. He really cared about me and I really cared about him and uh, he told me, you know, if we want things to keep going, he said, so you know, I'll never marry a woman that doesn't believe in God and doesn't follow Jesus. So he brought me to church, and it was really nice. Uh, I really liked the music. The sermons were really easy to understand. Everyone was really friendly. But I still just wasn't in. I wasn't all in. I just, I didn't quite believe yet. So I came to church with my boyfriend for a few months. just sitting through the sermon, listening along. And that day happened to be communion. I looked at my boyfriend and I said, should I take one? He said, only if you really believe. So the pastor gets up there. He starts talking and says, you know, I understand that some of you are angry with God, you're lost, you feel unloved. So as he continued, he said, I want you to know that God's here for you and He loves you, and He wants you to be a part of our family. So after Pastor Kevin was done with the prayer, a woman came up on stage and started singing. As she was singing on the screens, there was the most beautiful scene of a woods and this light shining through the woods. As I was watching the video, I just sat there and thought, I wish I had that in my life. I wish I had that light showing me which way to go. And all of a sudden, it just hit me. I just knew in that moment that God was real, that Jesus is real, that I was loved, I was wanted, and I'm not a burden. And it was just such an amazing feeling. I just started bawling right there in the middle of service. Thankfully, his mom knew exactly what was going on, and she just gave me a big hug and just said, everything's okay now. So finally, when I was able to tell my boyfriend, I just laid it all out for him and let him know, this is, I believe, I know. And so we're just sitting there bawling on the couch together. We're both just so overjoyed. He's just ecstatic for me for knowing that love that he already knew wasn't even a month later he proposed to me and of course I said yes we were married in October of 2012 after finding Jesus I know there's no way for me to do anything for God or to earn my place in heaven but I did choose to be baptized just to show that I'm all in I love God and I know he loves me and the only way that I could ever get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. I now know that God loves me, I'm wanted by God, and that's all I could ever ask for.
0: Appreciate Heather's story. And uh, as she came to Christ, and really, this is what Hindsight 2020 is all about, it's it's putting our life in context of what's happened in the past, and then how we go through life. And what we're looking for is that there's a point in time where our life has been forever changed. And, and as a, if you're a believer, you should be able to look back and see when that point of time happened in your life, because Christianity is different than other religions. Um, for example, in In the first century, when Christianity started blowing up around the world and spreading, that all happened through conversion. And I'm going to get back to that word in a minute. But that's not the way other religions spread typically. For example, in the fifth century, when Islam came into the front, it mainly spread through force and warfare and coercion where lands were conquered and people were told that this is the way it is now. Or in the East, with the Eastern religions of uh, Hinduism, for example, that mainly grew through birth rate. But Christianity didn't start that way, didn't grow through warfare or birth rate. Christianity grew through conversion. And, And when I even say that, in our culture today, some people, they have an aversion to that word. Conversion. They, they don't like that. It has a hard edge to it. It sounds like something wrong is happening there, but that's really the story of the church, that people were converted, that they believed one way, and they realized that that was wrong, and they believed a different way. Conversion is necessary to the Christian life, whether you like the word or not. I, I remember uh, w- we sometimes realize we have to convert things, and a few years ago, I was leading a team here from Grace. We were going to our orphanages in Thailand. We stopped. We had a layover in in a city in uh, southern China named Guangzhou. And while we were there, we decided, well, rather than layover, you know, 12 hours or something, maybe we'd do that for 24 hours or whatever and spend a day there. And then that would allow us to actually get some rest. And And so we landed there in the morning. And some of you probably heard this. We got there at maybe 5 a.m. and And everybody, we had just flown for... I don't know, what, 16 hours or whatever. We, Scott's back there. He was there, and uh, we were tired, and the, we just all wanted to sleep and eat. We were, we were starving, and we wanted, you know, we wanted food, and then we wanted to be able to go lay down somewhere, and that's what we were trying to do. But we didn't have any Chinese currency. I needed to convert dollars because it's illegal to use them, and so and that became a little more difficult than I thought. And so we went through the airport, I had arranged for some transportation to go to a hotel. We don't know anybody, and we don't know the language, so some of that was a little dicey. But we get to a hotel, and you know it turns out we're, I led us into an area that wasn't all that friendly. But anyway, we got there, and I tried to convert some money at, at this large hotel. They wouldn't do it. That was, you know, in the city, away from the airport, long story. But, uh, but then the, deal, the only thing I could do is go to the Bank of China, which is a few blocks away, and then wait until it opened like at 9 a.m. And in the meantime, our team, they're hungry, and they're getting grumpy. I mean, they, they're getting hangry, if you know what that means, you know. And, uh, and so I'm there, and, and I'm first in line. I've been waiting there, and then they open the gate to this bank branch. There's like six employees. I'm the first person in line. All I need to do is a simple thing of a couple hundred dollars cash, U.S. cash, to Chinese currency. Very simple. This would normally, you know, take, what, five minutes, tops, tops. And I get there, and it doesn't go easy. They don't want to do it for me. And I think it's because I'd been denied a visa because I was a pastor, this, that, and the other thing. It just wasn't working out very well. And I was literally in that branch office two hours while the team was waiting out on the steps, trying to. and I'm not taking no for an answer because we don't have any options. And so, you know, I'm just staying there, and I, you know, And they don't want to convert. They have no question about that the bills are okay. They just don't want to do this for me, exchange this money. And I don't want to leave. And so I just have to have interview after interview. They start asking me question after question, you know, just detailed questions. Questions that are hard for a guy who who lived in nine different places before I got out of elementary school to answer. Like, give me the street address of the hospital that you were born in. You know, stuff that, you know, I'm just like, what? And uh, But anyway... Finally, I got, talked to somebody, and I'm in there sweating. You know, I mean, I'm being grilled. I'm, I've been asked literally 50 to 100 questions. What do I do? Why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I here? I heard that one like 15 times. Why am I here? And all this stuff, and, you know, and I'm just like trying to get this, you know. And then in the meantime, the team, they're sending me little text pictures. You know, they're laying on the steps. Oh, hungry. Food. Food. it's not helping. There you finally. And why? Why do I need that? Because, hey, the money that we had, we're in a new place now. That doesn't work anymore. We need something different. We need this money to be converted. Well, that's a lot like the Christian life, this conversion. Something has changed. It's different. And here's the question. Has Christianity really changed, really converted your life? Because for a lot of people who call themselves Christians, it really hasn't. It honestly really has not changed the trajectory of their life. They're just still living their life. They've just sprinkled in a little belief. Well, that's what I want to talk about today. And where I want to talk about it is from a passage in Scripture that really records maybe one of the most famous conversions of all history. And it happens in Acts chapter nine. we're going to start in verse one, and it's the conversion of Paul. and so before we read that, I, I just want to uh, to introduce you a little bit. Acts is written by Luke. Luke is the guy that wrote the book of Luke and he also wrote another letter, Acts. So the four Gospels are all about the life of Jesus, then Acts is about the, after that about the first years of the church, and Luke is writing as a historian about these first years of the church, and he introduces a character named Saul or Paul. He goes by Saul, then later his name's changed from Paul, same guy, not a disciple. He, come, he wasn't a believer when Jesus was in his earthly ministry. And, and so he introduces this character. And the way he introduces this before chapter 9 is that Saul is there at the stoning of Stephen. So persecution breaks out After Jesus is crucified, he he was raised three days later. He appears to his disciples. We talked about a little bit last week and how that interacted with Peter. After 40 days, he ascends up into heaven. The believers in Jerusalem are bold now. The church breaks out. We see that in the opening chapters of Acts. And Peter's a big part of that. And they start preaching. People start being converted. But then there is a backlash. There is persecution that breaks out. And here is when Saul, or Paul, is introduced. One of the leaders in the church is named Stephen, is stoned to death by the Jewish people in Jerusalem about this point in history. And Saul is there approving of that. He's supporting the stoning of this Christian. Now, later, we pick up his story in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem." And while he was traveling, it happened that he was suddenly, I'm sorry, while he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision. Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So here is the story of the conversion of Paul. So Paul He, on his own initiative, being opposed to Christians, goes to the high priest, gets letters that allow him to travel to Damascus, which is north in Syria today, goes to Damascus, Syria, so that he can go into the synagogues there and start arresting people, Jewish people, who believed in Christ as Lord. And then after arresting those men and women, bring them back to Jerusalem where they will be tried and even possibly executed, which is what happened to Stephen. So Paul's on his way. He's got a cohort of people with him. On the way, he's confronted by the risen Christ. Now, this is after Christ's resurrection and ascension. Christ comes and appears to Paul in a blinding light. Later, we're told by Paul this happens at noon, at midday. He's knocked down to the ground. And Jesus confronts him and says something kind of interesting, because Paul's persecuting the church, persecuting Christians. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And then, well, who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. So twice, Jesus is identifying himself with his people. And now for Paul, he's th- th- this is a train wreck for his life. He's blinded. He's led into Damascus. He... he has this vision that a guy's going to come and restore his sight and so God shows up to one of his followers in Damascus a man named Ananias and says hey Ananias I need you to get up go to straight street find Judas's house in there is a man named Saul from Tarsus lay hands on him so he can see and then Ananias is going "Whoa, whoa 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 did you say Saul we've heard about Saul this is the guy from Jerusalem. This is the guy who's killing Christians. This is the guy who has letters from the high priest so he can arrest us and take us back there. And so that, we, you know, we're, this is not a nice man. This is a bad dude. And God says, yeah, I know. Go to him. I'm going to use him. And he's going to suffer too. But I'm going to use him and he's going to preach my name. He's going to preach my name to Gentiles, to kings, and to the sons of Israel. And so Ananias does it. He goes there, finds Paul, puts his hands on him. Paul can see. And now Paul, can you imagine this three days? He can't see. He doesn't eat or drink before he meets Ananias. And he is going through some stuff because he's been following God, trying to do that. He's persecuting Christians. And now he knows Jesus is real, confronted by Jesus personally so that's kind of what's going on with him and a lot of times the problem when people see this is that his conversion is so dramatic is kind of an issue because it you may be like me where I talk to people who aren't Christians and a lot of times we're talking about you know evidences for for Christ being God and just why it makes rational sense how we can sort of prove that and you know taken on all comers and we like to do that and that's all good but a lot of the times people no matter how much you say what they'll just come down to something like this and I've heard people non-believers tell me this before well if God shows up to me personally in a miraculous way then I'll believe and if he's God he can do that so the burden's on him you know, let me know when he wants to show up and show me who he is, so I'll know for sure that I should be believing him. And that's what people think. They say, you know, if God appeared supernaturally like that, then I would believe. Unfortunately for us, this conversion of Acts is not the only conversion in the Bible, right? That Acts. Shares even this one book shares other conversions that are more like what we typically would experience today. And uh, Luke documents all that. But here's what I want to get to. Some of you here need to know whether you have been truly converted. And you need to know that because your life really hasn't changed. And all of us here need to know exactly how to live out truly converted lives. And so even though conversions happen, we heard Heather's story, we all who are believers have a story of how we came to Christ. We hear Paul's story and other stories in Acts. But there are three things that are common to all conversions, and that's what I want us to drill down On today. And here's the first one. These sound a little different, so hang with me. Let me explain it. First, to be converted, we need to abandon the God that we project out of our own heart so that we can follow Jesus. We need to abandon the God that we project out of our own heart and follow the real God Jesus and here's how this applies to Paul. Paul had his views on God. Paul was a student of the Old Testament. He believed in the God of the Old Testament. Every day as a good Jew, he would recite the Shema, which was hear O Israel, the Lord God our God the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. He understood the God of the Old Testament. But Paul was trying to serve the God of the Old Testament, but he had ignored some things in the Old Testament that are hard to understand about God. And then he filled in the gaps that were left because of that with what, how he thought God should be. So... Paul, for example, believed in a God who could never be human. A God that could never be three because God is one. He, and, and when he did that, he started believing in a God that was partially a projection of his own heart. Paul believed in the God that he wanted to believe in. And he was certain that God that he wanted to believe in could never be A human being but then suddenly Paul is confronted with the resurrected Jesus who revealed himself to him and knocked Paul down and then everything changed this is so key for us to kind of get what I'm trying to bring out here so key for us because today anytime you talk to people about God it seems like most the time anyway they say things like this. As you describe God in the New Testament and the Old Testament, same God, then they'll say things like this. Well, I don't believe in a God who could destroy the world with a flood. I don't believe in a God who could send somebody to hell. The God I believe in is a God who accepts people who are sincere and and who do right and And so people have this, you know, here, I don't believe in this God, the God I believe in. Why do you believe that? Why do they believe that? Because people want to believe in a God that's like them. People want to believe in a God that's like how they want God to be. And they do that because it might solve some personal, intellectual, or emotional conflicts they have with what the Bible says about God. But that God will never convert you. That God you project. That God will never change you at your deepest level. Why? Because you've made that God in your own image. The human heart is an idle factory. We want to make God the way we want God to be. And when you talk to people like that, it's kind of amazing because if you do that, you're going to find out that that God, he agrees with you a lot. As a matter of fact, that God thinks a lot like you think. That God, and as a matter of fact, and you can talk to people about God, and guess what? You know more about that God than anybody because you made him up. You're the only one that knows him because he's not real. We deal with this all the time. And that God may make you feel comfortable, but that God will never convert you. Because for God to convert you, you need a real God who will not agree with you on everything. A real God who will tell you things you don't want to hear. The resurrected Jesus confronted Paul about who God really is. And God's infinite. And we understand Like Paul, we understand that there are things about an infinite God that we're not always going to understand. Now, logically, we can assume that since God created us as rational beings and allowed us to think and gave us evidences, that God has given us everything that we need to know about God. But of course, logically, God can't tell us, nor could we understand everything about God because God's limitless and infinite, and we're finite and limited. So do we know everything about God? No. Do we know everything we need to know? Yes, he's given us that. And notice, Jesus doesn't stop Paul on the way to Damascus and give him a theological explanation of the Trinity. Jesus doesn't stop Paul and say, Hey, let me point out some passages in the Old Testament that point to the Trinity that you just kind of looked the other way on. And, let me, and, this, and this is how I'm going to explain to you how God could be one God, which is true, but also exist eternally as Father, Son, and Holy. That didn't happen, right? Here's what, here's what Jesus did Jesus just showed up and said, I'm God, deal with it. And then Paul was left to pick up the pieces. And the minute Paul knew that Jesus was actually raised from the dead, he realized that Jesus should own his life. I mean, it just came down to that. And I know people struggle. People say, well, if I'm supposed to be converted and you're saying the God I'm thinking about is not the real God, well, how do I know that the God you're talking about is the real God? You know, how do I know? And so we spend a lot of time as believers talking to non-believers, trying to figure all that, and there's a thousand proofs, you know, I mean, you look around, I mean, there's just a, a lot of ways to approach that, but in proving Jesus, it's, it's easy to kind of just get caught up in the argument, and I kind of enjoy those arguments, and get caught up in all this stuff, but it really just comes down to like it did with Paul, you could just bring it down to simple things like, hey, did the resurrection happen or not? Because if the resurrection happened, then it doesn't matter what you think about God or what you think about what's written in the Bible or what you think about what God did in the past or this or that or the other thing. It does not matter. He's God. Deal with it. And, and that's what happened with Paul. He didn't believe in the resurrection, and then he did believe in the resurrection. But if you reject the resurrection like Paul did at first, Then today, now, if you reject the resurrection of Jesus, then you need to come up with a theory that accounts for all those conversions in the first century, like Paul's, and how the entire world has been impacted through the life of Christ like no other life in all of history. If there's no resurrection, then what's your theory? Because you need one in order to be intellectually honest with yourself. Jesus died for you, he was risen, he loves you, and he wants you to follow him. He wants a relationship with you. And by the way, you can't have a relationship with someone who never talks. You can't have a relationship with someone who never says anything against you or never talks back to you. That's not a true relationship. And if you have that kind of a relationship with a person, they are hiding themselves from you. So the first step is that we abandon the God that we project from our own heart to follow the real Jesus. Secondly, We recognize that our past life is wrecked and we follow Jesus. This is what happened to Paul. He realizes that everything he's done is based on a lie. Jesus changes our thinking about everything. He realizes that his attacks on the church were a lie. His old life is wrecked. He can't honestly believe that anymore. The story of his life is forever changed. The deepest, and here's the deal, the deepest need of your heart is a God who's not the product of your heart. He has to come from outside of you. And people say, well, how do I get a God like that? The only God that can overcome your heart is a God who doesn't come from your heart. And we see this change in Paul. He was an angry, violent, abusive zealot. And and there are people like that today. They're not nice people to be around. They're deeply unhappy. They're restless. That's Paul at the beginning, but here's the change. Paul. Look at what Paul writes later in his life after being converted by Christ. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In Colossians 3.12, he says, so, so as those who've been chosen of God, meaning Christians, so as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. That's a different guy, and, and there are dozens of examples of this. Paul changed from an angry zealot to a loving, humble, patient, caring Christian who spent his life helping other people discover the love of God. But that love changes us. And and the thing is, not everybody wants to change. A lot of people are happy with their lives. And when they realize that becoming a Christian is a matter of conversion, that it that God will change our lives, then they say, well, I can't accept the God of the Bible. My God is like this and my God is like that because I don't want to change. And the God that I have doesn't require me to change. The God I have likes me the way I am. The God I have is happy with everything I'm doing. Okay. Well, where does your God tell you things you don't want to hear? How does that happen with your God? Unless you have a God that tells you the things you don't want to be true, you'll never have a God who will change you by telling you the things too good to be true. God has to be outside of us. So again, we abandon the God of our own making. We recognize our past life is wrecked. And then last... What about our regrets? What about as we look at the timeline for life, we're looking back here and we're going, well, what about all that stuff? How do I process? How do I deal with that? Well, third, last thing is you live a new story, leaving regret, following Jesus. Paul knew regret. Paul bitterly regretted his persecution of the church. He lived with it, that comes out in his writings. But Paul's, Paul also writes about how regrets can be used by God. Actually, there's this classic example in the writings of Paul. Remember, Paul goes on now to become a, a leading Christian. He becomes a great preacher. He starts establishing churches in other cities, and they just go city to city to city, starting churches. One of those cities was a very influential city named Corinth, a large influential city. He establishes a church there. He moves on. He's establishing other churches. In the meantime, after he leaves, he hears that there's a scandal in the church. So I'm just telling you the story to set up how God deals with regrets, but you got to have a little context. So he hears there's a scandal in the church, among the members of the church. And what he finds out is that there's a man in the church who is living with another man's wife. So a man in the church is living with somebody else's wife. And not only that, the somebody else is the man's father. A man is living with a woman who is his father's wife, his stepmother. And so there's a scam, And the church is just accepting it. And Paul hears this, And he's bummed. He can't believe it. He's grieved. And so he writes a letter to that church. It's called 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 5 deals with this exact issue. And he's saying, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You cannot let this kind of open sin just be accepted in the church. It will ruin the people. It will mess up your church. It will keep you from doing your mission. You cannot allow this to happen. And he drops the bomb on them. He says, this guy needs to be put out of the church. And it's kind of harsh. And he sends the letter. And then later, he's kind of questioning himself because he you know he came down pretty hard, but he knew it had to be done. And he doesn't know how they're going to respond. They may just say, forget you, we're doing our own thing here. Like most churches today would, by the way. But then he finds out that his letter grieves them. That they realize they've done wrong. And then he hears that that's true. And then he writes another letter and called 2 Corinthians. And here's where we get to this regret part that I want to talk about. So Paul hears, they do what he recommends, and he writes again. This is now 2 Corinthians 7, beginning with verse 8. He says this. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while. Now I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. What's he saying? I'm just using this as an illustration. Paul knew regret. So Paul has something to teach us about regret. And Paul's saying, hey, you can use grief, sorrow. You're bummed over something you do. And these words are all connected. In the Greek, it's a little more confusing because it's a wordplay. Sorrow, grief, regret are all very similar words. And he's saying, hey, you could... God can use our grief or our regret in a positive way by bringing repentance in our life. Now, there's a different kind of regret, a worldly regret, that you're, just, you're sorry, but you're just sorry you got caught. You're just sorry that it happened. You're not repentant. You're not wanting to change. You're just bummed that it came to light. But Paul's saying, if it's godly regret, it can bring repentance. That's the way it is in my life, and maybe this is true of you, it'd be interesting to me to know if this is true of everybody. I look back on my life and I have regrets. I mean, I, and sometimes I do that and I'll just say, yeah, this, 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 and it's just all these events in my life that I regret. And, and for me, every single one of those happened to be sin. I'm just looking at regrets, I'm not looking at sins, but all my regrets are things that I either clearly knew were wrong, or I should have clearly known were wrong. They weren't gray areas. All my regrets were sin. And then I remember as a young person, and and I remember thinking, life is kind of dicey, because you got to make these decisions. And you don't really know which decisions you might regret. And so it's, it's a little bit of a gamble. But then as I grew in my faith, I realized, no, it's really not like that. For me, I firmly believe, and I believe this is true for everyone, that if I just determine to follow Christ, I will never have regrets in doing that. If I just do the right thing, I will never regret that. So I want to stop all my regrets, and I hate regrets. Well, then all I have to do is follow Christ. And for how do I deal with the regrets that I do have is that I recognize that it's because I strayed from God, and that causes me brings me to repentance, and then motivates me to be closer to God so I won't experience those types of regrets again. Does that make sense? So what do we do? How do we deal with this? Conversion. Abandon the God that we tend to project at our own individual heart. Realize with the truth of Christ that our past life without Christ, it's wrecked. Whether we follow Christ or not, when we know he's real, our old life is wrecked. And then third, live a new story, live a new life, move on beyond our regrets to repentance and following Christ. That's what God wants for all of us. That's what Paul processed in his own life. That's what true Christianity involves when we talk about this word, conversion. And so the the takeaway is, can you look back on your life with hindsight and back to a point where you've given your life to Christ? Uh, And when when you started believing. And, and, And that's great. But true belief brings conversion. It brings change. It brings transformation. It brings new life. And our life will change. Some dramatically, some less dramatically. But at least our motivations will change. Because our old life was based on a lie. And we have a new life. And a new story, and a new song, as we follow Christ. I'd like you to stand and close in closing prayer. We have, we're not going to close in prayer. We actually, I'm going to pray, and we have a, a closing song. Let's pray together, Father God. Lord, help us as believers, to see you for who you really are because we confess to you our hearts, our idol factories, and we tend to mold and shape you in our image, which is always wrong. Lord, bring us back to your word. Bring us back to your truth. Bring us back to repentance to follow you, to be converted by what you say, what you speak into our lives. And, Father, for those here who are are maybe not even sure that along with their belief in you came change, came conversion, came transformation. That you would draw them to yourselves, help them to see Lord, that you would make that happen in their heart, that you would settle that in their life. And, God, we thank you for the joy that even our regrets can bring now as we have repentant hearts focused on you, willing to follow, living out a new life, a new story, a new song. In Christ's name, amen.